Speaking of something so excitingly interesting, I think, is the fact that what God can do in our lives to restore what's been robbed from us. And you say, what's been robbed from us? Well, when we make poor decisions and we allow sin to have its effect in our lives, it destroys so much in our life. And you know what? The Bible teaches us that God can restore the years that it says the locust and the canker worm destroyed. How many are really open to, God, I'm open to a new restorative work in my life, just like they restore vehicles, right? You know, an older vehicle, all of a sudden they do all that work, all of a sudden it looks like a brand new vehicle. How many are saying, I'm open for God to do a restorative work in my life this morning? Anybody here? All right, let's pray and ask God to do that work of grace in our hearts. So Father, I just want to thank you for each of our candidates this morning. I've been praying that whether it be an open heaven, that your spirit would come into their lives in an amazing measure, just like it did at your baptism, Jesus. And as they were following you in obedience, I pray that you'll bless them with your divine blessings because of this step. Lord, I pray today as we are opening our hearts to your presence, Lord, all of the things that have been um, taken from us and robbed. I pray that you're going to do an amazing restorative work today as we respond to your spirit and your word. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm kind of glad that the young people are here this morning because I think this is a topic that really is appropriate for every age group because I think we all have to deal with this issue in our lives. Uh, C. Leslie Charles wrote a book, Why Is Everyone So Cranky? It's kind of an interesting name, you know? And basically what he said is, he says, I'm describing a fuming, unrelenting sense of anger, hostility, and alienation that simmers for months, even years without relief. Eventually, all it takes is a triggering incident, usually minor, for the hostile person to go ballistic. And how many know that's so true? We, you know, we see a lot of expressions of people who all of a sudden, they just go crazy, and when you study their story, you study their life, and then they, they respond in a very terrible way. A lot of, you know, we see these shootings, and they're actually shooting people they don't even know. It's just based out of a huge amount of anger. They've never really addressed that issue in their life. And then he goes on to talk about cell phones, pagers, high-tech devices, do you realize that you and I rarely have a mental break anymore? There's constant interruptions in our life. There's constant accessibility, and then the compulsive use of technology. How many have kind of noticed that you go somewhere, and you walk into a room, and everyone's heads down. No one's talking. They're just kind of going on their phones, you know? And it's, it's like you know, just invasive into our lives. And so I'm noticing that people are struggling, even building meaningful community. We think we're going to do it on the cell phone. But here we have a person live in front of us, eyeball to eyeball, and yet we're focusing in on, because we feel safer to hide behind the technology. James Cabarino, a human development professor at Cornell University, he said he reported a major social shift in society. And this is what he said. There's generally a breakdown of social conventions, manners, and social controls. And it almost validates people so they have permission to be aggressive. And we've kind of noticed that. How many recognize, you know, you're watching something on television and you can actually see, you know, how much vulgarity comes on there, you know, promiscuous behavior. It's almost like we're telling people it's okay to behave poorly. And we see that even in talk shows, people's language and the way they operate. And so when we see it in the mainstream of media, it's kind of validating in people's minds it's okay to behave like this. How many know that uh, this kind of stuff basically releases a lot of inhibitions. 
And in the past, people were kind of told, you know, you have to kind of control yourself, manage your emotions. Today, people are told to express themselves and just let everything hang, you know, and just, and, and a lot of times people are saying things that cause a lot of damage in other people's lives, and yet we're not really processing the effects of our words and our comments before other people. You know, the tragedy is that this issue of anger doesn't just stop in the culture. You know, often we have been so affected, even in the church world, the culture seems to have so penetrated into our church culture that lots of problems have developed. You know, Bob Moeller wrote a book a number of years ago. He was a church consultant, and he had to go into situations with all kinds of difficulties in churches. And he shares a number of those incidents, and he shared uh, one of them where a pastor was uh, pastoring a church in New England, and a little girl, about six years old, is coming up. Pastor's going to greet her. Good morning, Karen. How are you doing this morning? And instead of just saying, you know, I'm doing great or something, she just says, my mom hates you. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> and so the pastor's kind of taken back by that statement. And, and uh, he says, well, why does your mom hate me? And she says, because she says you're ruining our church with great sincerity in her big brown eyes. Like, she doesn't even realize what she's communicating. And then she goes on to say, both daddy and mommy say they just wish you would leave. In another incident, a church could not agree upon to who to call as their next pastor. And the church was divided, and they had kind of polarized around two candidates. And so they so dug in their heels that the one group called one guy, and the other group called the other guy. And they had them come on the same day. Believe it or not, they both showed up. How crazy is this? And then they both decided they were going to preach the sermon on the same time. And they were trying to get over top of each other. And eventually, an argument broke out in the congregation, and it escalated into a fist fight. <laughs> Police were called in to this church to break up the fight that was going on inside the church. And this is, I love how Bob Moeller ends the statement. He just basically says, onward Christian soldiers took an entirely new meaning that morning. <laughs> you know? Just crazy, some of the things people do. And then probably the most tragic story he relates in his book is of a, a pastor who had gotten a phone call and his daughter was killed tragically in another state. He flew over to where his daughter was now gonna have a funeral service for her. He was so brokenhearted. He could see her lifeless body in the coffin. He was so distraught. And you know how many when you're in that state, you're just in a state of numbness and stunness. And, and uh, he's kind of looking around. He noticed there was no flowers from his own church, the one that he was been serving. And so he kind of doesn't think anything of it, you know. He's just kind of moving forward. Eventually, just before he's to come home, he gets a phone call from one of the leaders of the board and just basically says, Pastor, we just want you to know that we're docking you a week's vacation from the time you're away. And uh, the pastor goes, what? And he goes, you can't be serious. And he said, yeah, we had to have somebody else come in and speak, so we're using your pay to pay for that. And so at that moment, the, you know, Bob writes down, that day a bruised reed was broken in two. The pastor resigned, not only from the church, but from serving in ministry. You know, you know, we kind of wonder, what does God think of that kind of uncontrolled behavior? You know, that, you know, churches are in conflict, people in the culture are in conflict, there's there's so much hurt and brokenness and anger inside of people. We see it, you know, there's just, it's just spewing forth all over the place. And we're seeing more and more, you know, violent incidences that just don't make any sense. Random things, kids coming in, shooting people in their school. Something has gone awry. And so we want to take a look at, I call this sermon, 
the danger of anger. And I'm going to explain to you why I'm saying it that way because I think there is a place for anger. There is a right place for it. There is a wrong place for it. And then how do we process it in our lives? So Jesus now is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's dealing with a number of issues. And that's the book we've been studying here. And that's in the first three, uh, there's three chapters in the book of Matthew, chapters five, six, and seven, where Jesus gets up and probably preaches one of the greatest sermons that have ever been communicated. We've already looked at the Beatitudes, the attitudes we need to have, but now we're looking at Jesus' interpretation of the law. And last week I talked a little bit about how the religious people in his day, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, a special sect, who were very meticulous about you know, being religious and holy and keeping the letter of the law, and yet Jesus is challenging them because they're missing the intent of the law. How many have ever, you know, you've created a rule to try to curb a bad behavior and the people actually keep the letter of the law but they're breaking the intent of the rule? Has anybody ever experienced that? You know, sometimes we do that as parents. You know, we're making a rule to kind of curb our kids' behavior and, you know, they kind of go around it by following the letter of the law. So, you know, the number... Uh, days ago, Patty was telling me the story in Israel, you know, it's not kosher to have pigs, right? How many know that? And it's kind of unlawful. And so there's a law that you can't have pigs on the ground. And so some enterprising farmers decided, no problem, they put pallets, and so the, cow, the pigs were standing on the pallets, so they technically weren't on the ground. That's what I'm talking about, following a letter, but missing the intent and the spirit behind it. And so Jesus now is the author of the book, he's the author of the Torah, he's the author of the Old Testament, and now he's going to interpret the law so that you and I understand its intent. And so Jesus now is going to give us, the, in essence, what he means for us to keep the law. So I want to look at three things to consider when addressing the danger of anger within ourselves. Now, I know some of you, this may not apply to you, but if you've ever been upset, hurt, angry, frustrated, this sermon fits me anyways, and so if the only person that responds to it will be me, then that's great. By the way, I preached it in the first service. I responded to it, and I noticed a whole stack of people joined me. So I guess there was a few people that identified with what I was sharing with them. So how many know that it generally takes an angry person to commit intentional murder? It actually takes an angry person to do that. And, you know, we know that from law, there's the difference between premeditated murder and what they call manslaughter. Manslaughter is usually an act of murder that's done in the heat of passion. You know, something has risen up emotionally, they've gotten out of control and they've gone too far. And most people, when they do this, live with such shame and regret for having allowed that anger to take control and direct them in that situation. Now, that's very dramatic to kill somebody. But let's face it, some of us in this room, we've probably had moments in our life where we've been so angry, we've said things, done things, and then later on in reflection, realize that we got out of hand, that we really went over the line, that you know, we, 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 we were really in the wrong, and then we have to process maybe what we have done. The tragedy is that the angry person did not address the issue sooner in their soul and allowed the emotion to turn into actions that often, as I've said, create deep sorrow and regret in life. Now, it's interesting that these religious leaders thought that they were keeping the sixth command. You know, if you look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the sixth one says, thou shall not murder. And as long as they had not physically killed anyone, the religious people felt like they were keeping the law. But Jesus now is going to say something so dynamically uh, powerful, it's going to shatter their little safety net. 
if I could say it that way, and that little illusion that they're actually keeping the intent of the law. Let's pick up the story here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and beginning in verse 21. We're going to just look at four verses here today. Verse 21, it says, You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court, and whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Now, how many get a sense this is quite strong? What Jesus is saying is, when you and I are angry, many times what we do is not necessarily physically kill someone, but our mouths start talking, and we do irreparable damage in the words that we're saying as we depreciate other people because we're angry with them. And what Jesus is saying is, that's the nature of murder. It's not so much that I'm physically killing this person, but if you ever thought about it, how many people have been disabled, their characters and reputations have been ruined by somebody's talking and diminishing that person and who they are? How many parents have come along and said things to their child that have stayed etched in the mind of a child where the, maybe the parent in anger said, you'll never amount to anything, and the child carries that messaging in their hearts and never seems to get past that messaging. So we know that anger creates a lot of debilitating and painful situations in people's lives. Donald Hagner says it this way. Uh, he said, uh, Jesus penetrates to the spirit of the commandment. Since the spring of a person's conduct is the heart or inner person, the transforming power of the kingdom must be especially experienced there. Now, what he's, he's a New Testament scholar. What he's basically saying is, God's kingdom changes us from the inside out. What God does is when we give our hearts to him, he begins to change our hearts. And the transformation is an internal transformation. He's changing us from the inside out. Is that a really powerful thing? You know, this last year, I have spent an entire studying the book of Proverbs, and I'm writing on a specific theme there. And I can honestly say, as I'm, as I'm coming to the end of it, I'm realizing that the Hebrew wisdom writers were basically saying how important is the condition of our hearts. Matter of fact, it says in Proverbs, out of the heart come the issues of life. The words that we're speaking are actually coming from the heart. So the condition of our heart is really important. And so it tells us to give our hearts to God in the book of Proverbs. And then it says to guard our hearts. You know, if I was to write a book now in the book of Proverbs, I would call the book, Give Me Your Heart. And then the subtitle would be, Guard Your Heart. I mean, those are the two important conditions if we're going to live wisely before Almighty God. He goes on to say here, anger and insult spoken from anger are evil and corrupting, and they are therefore called forth God's judgment, just as the act of murder itself does. Accordingly, the worship and service of God cannot be performed as long as anger infects the soul. So what we're going to see in a few minutes is that when you and I are in the wrong emotional, mental condition, when we're living an angry life, when we're living a hurt life, a bitter life, an unforgiving life, we can't serve God. We have been now, you know, there's, there's an impediment between ourselves and our relationship with God that needs to be addressed. And we're really not serving God. Sometimes, you know, we say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm following God, but yet we're filled with anger and resentment. Folks, I'm gonna just dispel a myth. You are not connecting. And God is not paying attention to what you're saying. And you're going to see that from the scriptures themselves. 
Now, the Pharisees, this religious group, and the teachers of the law were stating that the motivation for not committing murder was simply, hey, you're going to be punished if you do that. Of course, it's a crime, and you're going to go to jail or be executed. Jesus goes, no, no, it's far bigger than that. It's far deeper than that. What Jesus is basically saying is you can actually feel secure, like I'm keeping all the commandments. You know, it's like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus one day, and Jesus said, he said, what, does, what, will, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that conversation? And Jesus, well, said, keep the commands. He said, well, I've done all of that since my youth. And Jesus said, there's one thing that you lack. He says, now take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor. And you know what? He walked away sorrowfully. And you know why Jesus said that? Because he was very rich and he was trusting in his riches rather than trusting in God. And how many know that when you and I trust anything but God, that's actually an idol and it always diminishes us as people. It robs us of joy. It robs us of peace. It robs us of happiness. You know, all goodness comes from God. So if we're walking away from God or we're not connected to God, we're not living in the abundant goodness that God wants to bring into our lives. He goes on here to say that, you know, these Pharisees and scribes felt perfectly happy about the law on this point so long as they didn't physically kill somebody. You know, they weren't guilty of murder. For a man to commit murder was, of course, a terrible thing to them, but, it, but if he did so, he would be arraigned before the court and the judgment suitable to such a crime would be meted out to him. But as long as one did not actually commit murder, all was well and he could face the commandment, thou shalt not kill, and say to himself, well, I've kept and fulfilled that law. That's what Dr. Lloyd-Jones points out. But Jesus says something even more significant. And another New Testament scholar, Leon Moore, says it this way, rightly understood the law goes much further than his hearers had reckoned. For them, it was enough not to put someone to death. For Jesus, that's just the beginning. He goes to the cause of murder. What creates a murderer, he says, is that the person is angry. That's the wellspring. That's the initial emotion that causes this to happen in our society. You know, our society is very superficial. We always deal with the outward things because we don't know how to deal with the inward things. See, the, the kingdom of God is gonna deal with the heart condition. He's gonna eliminate the outward problems by eliminating the root causes of those outward problems, and that's what we need to understand. Okay, now, I'm gonna move a, a little bit through this stuff, okay? I can do that. I know what's here. <laughs> Let me just go to this text here, and then I'll, I'll move into my next point. The Apostle Paul points out in his letter to the Ephesians, this is very interesting, he said, in your anger, do not sin. Now, I gotta stop here and say something, and you're gonna raise the question, didn't Jesus get angry? Wasn't Jesus sinless? And the answer is yes to both. Jesus did get angry, and yes, Jesus didn't sin. Notice what it says, do not let, do not, in your anger, do not sin. It's not saying that anger per se is a sin. Follow this with me. It's not the emotion of anger that's a sin. It's what we're doing with our anger that determines if it becomes a sin. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. So what is he saying? Here's our problem. Usually we get angry about the wrong things. If you notice what Jesus got angry about, he was always angry about people who were treated poorly. He was angry about the way people related to God in an incorrect way. He was angry about how people were abused and mistreated. That's a good anger. 
As a matter of fact, how many know that anger is designed to motivate us to do something? And how many know it would even be terrible if you and I were not angry when somebody was being taken advantage of and we're watching this thing and it doesn't do anything for us? We're just indifferent and apathetic. How many know that would be the sin? We should be angry. We should want to do something in that situation. So angry is a motivating element. But here's the problem with our anger. Usually we're angry because we've been hurt. We're usually angry because we have felt slighted and offended. That's the problem. It's always about us. And we're at the center of this thing. And how many know there should be a different response than that? You and I have the capacity to actually show forgiveness. And when we see what people did to Jesus by crucifying him on the cross, rather than raging with anger from the cross at this huge injustice, what does Jesus say to his killers? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even have a clue what they're doing. All they could see was this amazing expression of love and forgiveness because Jesus wasn't angry about that. So we have to be angry about the right things. Now, if we leave this thing unchecked in our life, this anger issue, the next little part of the verse says, do not give the devil a foothold. You know, we have to understand we have an adversary you know, people say, well, the devil made me do it. That's kind of a cute statement. But in a sense, there's a little measure of truth to that. And here's the measure of truth. If we don't address unresolved issues in our soul, Satan uses those bad elements in our life to defeat us. And we live in this perpetual state of defeat. We're defeated because we are angry and we just get angry all the time and we become a habitually angry person. How many know after a while it affects relationships around us? You know, people get tired of being angry at, if I can use that kind of a concept. That gets old after a while and it really diminishes relationships around us. So let me move on to the second thing, the application of this principle in what I'll call relational conflicts. Because isn't that what happens? Is that we have, we're in these relationships and then all of a sudden there's anger involved and it has a devastating impact on the relationship. Isn't that true? We see it all over. So how, do, how are we supposed to deal with these things? You know, Jesus is ever practical. He's so pragmatic, you know. He realizes that as sinners, we're gonna hurt each other. How many in this room can honestly say someone has hurt you sometime in your life? Raise your hand. Someone has hurt you, okay? Now, the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, you must be dead. You don't have a pulse beat, you know, right? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Everybody's been hurt in this room. Isn't that true? Come on. Have you not been hurt at some point in your life emotionally by somebody? Well, of course. Now, how many here are willing to admit, I'm actually the person that actually hurt somebody once in a while? I got my hand up, you know? Does that ever happen? I think we have to be honest about it. If you can live life and never hurt somebody, I want to meet you, please. You know, you're just about like Jesus. I mean, because that's what Jesus, and you know, some people got offended by Jesus, but he wasn't hurting them. Now, let's take a look at what Jesus says to people that are dealing with this emotional issue and how dangerous it is. He says this in verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. So in other words, somebody's mad at you. He says, leave your gift there in the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Now, you know, I've read this hundreds of times, but I had a little epiphany. Here's my epiphany. We were just recently in Israel. Now follow my thinking, okay, for just a moment. You're a Jewish person and you live in Galilee. Isn't that beautiful? Some of us were just there. How many like Galilee? Isn't that a great place? All right. Now think about it. Do you know how far it is from Galilee to Jerusalem? Well, it's about 90 miles. Now, I want you to imagine right now, 
We're in Red Deer, the temple's in Calgary, and we have, because there's no cars, we've had to walk. How many think if you had to walk to Calgary, it may be possible not to make it in a day? That's going to take you a while, right? You're going to have to walk down there. Maybe they spent the night on the way, and oh, I forgot to tell you this, they took the long route. They didn't take any shortcuts, because if you took the shortcut, you'd have to go right through Samaria, and these guys had problems with the Samaritans, so they went around Samaria. So it even took longer. So maybe it took a day or two to get down to Jerusalem. So here you are, a good Jew, you're living in Galilee, you're heading to the temple, and you get there, and the first thing you gotta do is take some money to buy a sheep, because you have to offer up a sheep for your sins, right? Isn't that the way it worked in the Old Testament? Of course, you're going to the altar. You're gonna deal with the sin issue, or whatever the issue, a peace offering, whatever. So you get the animal and you're walking up to have this animal sacrifice on behalf of your sin and you're standing there and all of a sudden you remember, oh, my neighbor, he's upset with me. Now Jesus is saying, put the animal down. Basically he says, you've got to go put that offering down and head back and make things right. Now how many know this is going to be a hassle? So you go back to the exchangers. How many know when you exchange money, you never win? So you're exchanging money at the temple. You're losing money on the bargain. You have to sell back the lamb. You're, you know, you paid whatever, but you're getting paid back less. Now you have to trudge all the way back up to Galilee. Why? Because you gotta make this thing right. Then when you make it right with your neighbor, you gotta go all the way back down to the temple in Jerusalem, buy the lamb again at that Bigger price again, so that it's been a cost differential there. Then you finally get and you can offer your offering and God will accept it. How many get an idea? This is not convenient. Has anybody figured that out? I had, that, I had this epiphany. This is not a convenient thing that Jesus is asking us to do. He's saying, you've got to leave the altar and go and make this thing right. How many recognize it's not a convenient, happy thing to go and go talk to somebody who you know is upset with you? How many really enjoy doing that? nobody's raising their hand this We already know. I know this person's not happy with me. I've got to go make this right, and I've got to go talk to them. We all want to shy away from that, right? But can I point out to you, if you don't go do that, Jesus says the Father's not listening to you. So you have to make a decision. Do I want to do this inconvenient, awkward thing, make this thing right, address the anger issues, resolve the relational connectedness problem that I'm having with a human being, so in order that I can have a right relationship with God? And that's the choice we have to make. And that's the choice Jesus is giving us here today. Wow, that's intense, I think. But let me bring it down to a more practical level. Since most of you don't live in Galilee and you don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to offer an offering, can I just point out, this is maybe more in keeping with where we're living. We read this verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Husbands, in the same way be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that what? Nothing will hinder your prayers. You see, in Proverbs it says, God only listens to the righteous prayer. In other words, I have to have a right standing with God before he's going to pay attention to me. So the question's always asked, does God hear the prayer of a sinner? And the answer is, of course, if it's the right kind of prayer. And the right kind of prayer is they're saying, God, help me. I need help from you. That's always the right kind of prayer with God. Okay, he's listening to that prayer. But here's what I'm trying to say to us. You know, if I'm having a difficulty in a relationship, I have to anticipate I'm having a difficulty in my relationship with God. Isn't that what this verse is saying? Yeah, well, pastor, that's speaking of married couples, right? No, let's just apply it flat across the board. And you can do that. Let me give you another example. You know, I'm in the ministry. Well, yeah, that's obvious. Now, can you imagine 
I've been married to this girl for 40 years. So if, whenever we have a difference, I go, well, I have to do the hard work of making this thing right. Because I already know I don't have a ministry unless we're getting along. That short shortens everything up really fast. We have to resolve these things. See? Now, does that mean everybody does that? No, there's a lot of pastors. they got bad relationships and they don't have an effective ministry. That's true, right? We've seen that. So in our case, we go, no, got to make this right. Got to straighten this stuff out. You know what? It doesn't even extend, just stops to her. It means every person, my daughters, it means my neighbors, it means the staff, it just means everybody around me. If I know that there's not some, we're not in, in a good, harmonious, healthy relationship, I already know, forget talking to God. He's not going to pay attention to me. Are we getting this picture? Are we getting understanding? You go, well, that's the husband's job, Pastor. No, it's the spouse. I'm, I'm applying it to everything. Every person. You don't even have to be married. If you have bad relationships with people, it's affecting your relationship with God. That's what he's talking about here in Matthew's gospel. He says, if you know somebody has ought against you, go take care of that. Well, listen to what the gospel teaches us. This is what Jesus is looking for in our lives. He says, you know, this is what distinguishes a true Christian. If you want to know if you're a real Christian, here's the test. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How in the world did Jesus love us? Unconditionally and completely. As a matter of fact, God's love for us is so amazing, it's undeserved. Even when I mess up, God keeps loving me. So God is saying to me, that's the way I want you to love everybody you meet. Yeah, well, they don't deserve for me to be nice. And they're being nasty to me, God. God goes, yeah, but I get treated that way all the time, Paul. You got to be nice to them. Because I am. Okay, God, I'll do it. But you know what happens when we do what God tells us to do? We're released. It is an amazing freedom that comes into our lives. Because you'll say, well, you know, I've gone to people... And sometimes they don't respond very nicely. You ever gotten trying to make, you know, get things right with a person, they just tell you to bug off, you know, just out of here. I don't want to talk to you. Well, I'm doing my part, God. I went over, I'm trying, I'm humbling, I'm telling I'm asking for forgiveness. They're just telling me to find another room, get, just get out of my life. I don't want to talk to you. See, then you're off the hook. You've tried. It says as much as it lies within you to live at peace with all people. We need to understand that. Now, it goes on, verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if what? You love one another. So when, you know, you can say, well, I'm a very gifted communicator. I got a lot of wisdom. I have, but God, God, I could care less about that. Do you love people? See, that's the question God's going to ask all of us. Do you really love people? See, the bottom line is, if I tell God I love him, God says, okay, how do you love the people around you? Well, not very good. God says, you don't love me. See, until you receive God's love in your heart, you can't love other people. That's why we have to come to God and say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty broken, God. I need help. Because, you know, loving people is a real hard thing to do. But once that starts happening, it's amazing what starts happening in relationships. I love the story told by an Indian Christian leader. His name was Vinay Samuel. He said this, one sign and wonder, biblically speaking, that alone proves the power of the gospel is that of reconciliation. See, we have a ministry and a, and a message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God and be reconciled with each other. He says, Hindus can produce as many miracles as Christian miracle workers. That may shock some of you Christians out here. I've been to India, you know. 
Islamic saints in India can produce and duplicate every miracle that has been produced by Christians. As a matter of fact, if you study very carefully in the Old Testament, when Moses was doing those amazing miracles, the magicians were copying him up to a point, okay? So, you know, a lot of times we're really, we're really won over by signs and wonders. I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, but don't get too excited. You can duplicate some of this stuff. But I love his next line. He says this, but they cannot duplicate the miracle of black and white together of racial injustice being swept away by the power of the gospel. You see, when you're in a culture where there's so much bigotry and racial intolerance, and all of a sudden you see the gospel come to play, and you see people who traditionally don't like each other, loving each other, how many know that's speaking volumes? You see, we were just in Nazareth Village. I always love going there because you know what's happening in that village? You've got Jews and Palestinians loving each other. How many go, that's beautiful. Isn't that nice? See, that's what we need to see. You know, I love it when, you know, Patty and I, we had the privilege of working on an Indian reserve, an indigenous, indigenous people's reserve. I don't know what the name of it is now, but anyways. And I said to these guys, listen, I don't care if they're green or purple. It doesn't matter to me. Because you know what? I'll tell you, we all bleed the same color. We're all loved by God equally. There is not one racial group that is superior to another. We're all God's children down here, and he loves us all. Jesus came to die for the whole world, and you and I need to love every single person in it, even the ones that you don't like or get along with. Amen? That's the truth. Let me move on to the last point. I'll be real quick here. This is amazing. He says, settle the matter quickly with your adversary, verse 25. Who's taking you to court? Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. The tragedy is, that, is how we pay for our anger and unforgiveness is, is really amazing. You know, Philip Yancey tells the story of a friend, his name is George. He was so angry with his wife. You know, how many know when anger takes over, you can say some terrible things? And he was, he, was, he was so upset, he, he, uh, he basically was screaming at his wife. He was pounding the table. He's telling his wife, I hate you. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Okay, weeks later, in the middle of the night, he hears a strange sound. He starts moving through the corridors of his house, and he finally gets close to his little two-year-old son's bedroom, and he can hear his son. And his son is in the room, and it says, when he heard what he was saying, it sent shivers down his spine because his little two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection every single word he had said to his mother. And at that moment, it says, George realized that in some awful way, he had just passed on his pain and anger and unforgiveness to the next generation. Wow. You know, apart from forgiveness, the monstrous past may awaken at any time from hibernation and devour the present and even the future. What am I basically saying? Most people have allowed their past to define the present and the future. And the only way to change things is to bring forgiveness into the equation. But let me just close uh, with a story and an illustration. You know, when I left, Seattle, uh, left Red Deer over 20, 20 some odd years ago, almost 24 years ago, it's amazing to me, 1998, 20, well, it's quite a while. 
We went to Seattle, 1994 actually. We went to Seattle, and I probably had one of the most devastating experiences in my entire life. Somebody I totally trusted betrayed me. Not my wife. Another individual. No, I'm just, I have to qualify because people, you know, start adding the blanks. So anyways, we're in this situation. I ended up quitting the ministry there, and that was probably the most, the lowest point in my entire ministry. I've been a pastor 37 years. Been at it 13 years then. Crushing experience. I was so upset. It was unjust, unfair. I went to the board. I talked to them. I said, listen, you guys. And you know, I, I was totally right in what I was saying, but my attitude was totally wrong. How many know you can be totally right and totally wrong all at the same time? If your attitude is wrong, your spirit is wrong, you're wrong. So I realized that. About three days later, I went, wow, I just had not had the right attitude. Phoned them all up. I said, can I please come? I need to apologize to the whole board. See, if you sin against people, you should go tell them. Hey, I'm sorry, right? So I went. I apologized. I asked for forgiveness. But you know what? It was interesting. I, eventually, I thought everything's great. I thought I repaired the breach with the one individual who was probably the one that was where I was, most of my anger was directed at. And... I, I was back here in Red Deer. And, you know, well, we all dream. I just didn't remember my dreams. Some of you remember your dreams. Some of you don't. But every once in a while, I, re I remember one. And this one was so vivid. The person I was the, so upset with was actually dead. I was at his funeral, and his family wouldn't talk to me. And I thought, subconsciously, I think we have these dreams. And sometimes God uses them to awaken a thought in my mind. Just because I thought the issue was resolved, it didn't mean it was. So that day, I, got, I immediately, that day, I just, I wrote a two-page letter and really opened up my heart and we, I just was really transparent and I just asked for real forgiveness. And because by this time, I'm older, I'm more mature, and, I, and I, I'm looking at it from every which angle. About a week later, I get a phone call from this person. They said, that letter was the most moving letter I have ever read in my life. And I want you to know, you know, we just, we had such an amazing conversation on the phone. It's just incredible. So I thought, well, this is great. And then a number of years later, we're at a conference, pastor's conference. This person is there. This person I really love a lot. They're there. I'm there. And as we leave the conference, I said, you know what the highlight for the conference was for me, Patty? Was my time with this individual. I said, you know what was so marvelous to me? It was as if nothing had ever happened between us. It was as if we were as close as we had ever been. It was like, you know, that huge break in our relationship never existed. I felt such warmth and love towards this person. It was amazing what God had done in our hearts. How many think that's amazing? You see, when you and I do what God asks to do, God can do miracles in our lives. But let me close with this biblical illustration. How many know James and John were some of the closest apostles of Jesus? You know that? He took him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there. They were there when they raised the little girl back to life. Peter, James, and John, top three guys, always hung with Jesus. But you know, one day, Jesus was actually going into a Samaritan village. A little tension between Jews and Samaritans. They weren't really nice to Jesus. Peter and James, uh, uh, John and, and James says, you know, Jesus, why don't we just call fire down from heaven? Just scorch the whole village. You know, just destroy them. <laughs> That kind of gives you a little idea where they were from, right? You know, you have to remember now. You said, well, where are they coming up with this idea? Well, Elijah had actually done that. Prayed and fire came down and wiped out some people. So they thought, hey, we're just following the prophet Elijah, right? Jesus goes, hey, guys, I am not here to kill people. I'm not here to condemn people. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn it. I came to save it. You got the wrong idea, guys. 
And so after that day, he started calling them the Sons of Thunder. So how many know when you got a nickname or a moniker goes, the Sons of Thunder, you know that these guys are pretty hot at times. How many can guess that, right? So Jesus starts nicknaming them. Hey, John, you're a Son of Thunder. Right? James, you're a Son of Thunder. But you know what's really fascinating about those two? Well, James was beheaded, unfortunately for him. But John lived out to be old. And at the end of John's life, you know what he was called? The Apostle of Love. How many think it's an amazing thing to move from being a son of thunder to an apostle of love? How in the world did that happen? When you give your hearts to Jesus, he changes the human heart. And you know today, there are a lot of people in this room, you're sons and daughters of thunder. But deep down inside, you're saying to yourself, I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to be an apostle of love. And so we're going to stand right now as we close the service. We're going to pray. And I want to do something I did in the first service. Just take two minutes. Right now, you can honestly say, you know what, Pastor? You know, I've had moments in my life, you know, anger is not the predominant element in my soul. But I've had about two or three significant moments where I've gotten upset and I haven't behaved well, okay? I'm being honest. I don't really like that behavior. One time I was so ashamed of myself, you know, I just didn't want to be a pastor anymore. That's, that can really unearth you. Because sometimes when we do things, we have a hard time even forgiving ourselves. Anybody been there? I've been there. Why is it that I have to go through all these experiences hard? But that's the nature of it. And I say to myself, I don't ever want to allow anger a place in my soul. You know, if I have a little bit of that son of thunder in me, I want to be an apostle of love. That's my heart cry. And so this morning, if that's you today, you're saying, you know what? I want anger out of my life. I want love to fill my heart, and I'm going to treat people with that kind of a spirit. And maybe you've had that issue. I'm the first person today coming down to this altar and saying, Lord, I want to make an exchange right now. I don't want to have one shred of anger in my soul. I want to exchange my weakness, my sin, for your forgiveness, your love, and your grace. And that's you this morning. Just join me real quick right now, and I'm going to pray. Just join me right now. You just say, I don't want that in my life. It just does so much devastation in relationships. Just quickly, just slip up. We're going to pray. It's no judgment. I'm already here. I was the first one. I want that out of my life. I don't want it here. I'm going to open my heart right now and let the love of God so fill my life that I can relate to people in an amazingly loving way. Amen. So, Father, we open our hearts to you. You're the author of love. And we're going to exchange right now our sinfulness, our brokenness, our hurts. We're going to exchange our past patterns. We're going to exchange all the things in our life that causes us to be insecure and defensive. We're just going to lay all these things down at your altar today. And we're going to pick up right now your love. We're picking it up right now. Your amazing, gracious, understanding, forgiving kindness. We're praying, fill us right now, Father. Just fill us right now with the Spirit inside our hearts so that when people do things to us, offend us, hurt us, whatever, instead of lashing out in anger, we're going we're gonna to respond in a forgiving spirit. We're going to respond with tender mercies and compassion. They won't even know how to handle it, Lord. We're going to be like you. When they're crucifying us, we're going to be saying, Father, forgive them. We're going to have the face of an angel just like Stephen did when he was being stoned 
Instead of being angry at the people killing him, they looked at his face. It was the face of an angel and said, Father, do not lay the sin against their charge. He had a forgiving spirit. Lord, may that be the spirit in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.